0: I'm here to help anybody who is trying to snap themselves out of the groupthink, which has unfortunately taken hold of such a large segment of the population. As you're going to see in today's show, we live in a time of censorship. There are various uh, various ploys and ways that uh, we're kind of cowed into silence. Well, you don't want to be called a name, do you, right? You have to, you have to keep your mouth shut if you want to avoid being censored or otherwise marginalized. Well... I think that's a bunch of bunk and hooey, if I could quote Nancy Reagan. And uh, frankly, I think this is if there was ever a time to speak the truth, this is it. Now, please understand, I'm not setting myself up here as the fountain of truth. I'm not. I am a guy who is, is very serious about seeking out the truth wherever I find it, speaking it to the best of my knowledge, and, of course, being open to new truth as I encounter it. I think that's probably the scariest part. We, we don't really want to encounter truth and that uh, demonstrates to us that things that we held as dear and, and to be absolutely written in stone, sometimes, uh, well, sometimes they weren't. And nobody wants to admit to being duped. But whatever the reason you're tuned in today, thank you. It takes courage. To, to step outside of the groupthink and to, to really own your own worldview. And that's why I encourage my listeners not just to dabble in wrongthink. I encourage them to revel in it. I think it's, it's a necessary part of survival in the world that we live in today. So to begin, I want to talk a little bit about uh, weather. Well, climate, actually. <laughs> and You know, there's, there's, it just seems like someone wants us to be more fearful and therefore more easily manipulated, and I've got a great article here from D. Parker asking, "Does it seem like every news story lately is on climate doom?" Now, to help illustrate this point, if you go to my show notes today, this is August second, twenty twenty-three, at the BrianHydeShow I, I put up a screenshot of a graphic. This is a this is a TV weatherman. I'm guessing in Minnesota. Since it's it's primarily showing locations in Minnesota, a little bit in North and South Dakota, but uh, you know these are the these are the high temps. So here's the highs today. Let's see, uh, Grand Forks seventy eight, uh, uh, Sioux Falls eighty four, uh, most everywhere else. Brainerd, Minnesota seventy seven, Duluth seventy four. But the color of the map, I mean these these are not outrageous temperatures, but the color of the map would lead you to believe that. Every place is just absolutely on fire. It's that, that, that reddish-orange, fires-of-hell kind of look that's kind of become the norm for how weather is reported. And maybe I'm weird for, for being one of those people who says, why is that? Is there a psychological reason behind this, uh, hey, look look how hot it looks out there? I mean, it's, it really, it does. It, it like gives the impression of, of great danger. Oh, and, and heat, unbearable heat. 67 degrees in Grand Marais, uh, uh, Minnesota. I don't know about you, but uh, it feels feels like my chain's being yanked a bit here. Well, D. Parker asks, does it seem as though every news story lately is on climate doom? And he says, that's not an accident. In fact, the way he puts it is, ah, summertime, when living is easy, those days when you spend time outdoors at the beach or the pool with a cold beverage and steaks or burgers on the grill, when you can travel and camp in a national park and take in nature's magnificent beauty. At least that's the way it used to be. Until the fascist far left decided to cynically take full advantage of the fact that it gets warm in the summer and cold in the winter, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. Now he says, as is the case with other subjects. Anti-liberty leftists love to lie with language, substituting nondescript terms for similar but specific words to pull a fast one on the public. So we replace sex with gender, crime with violence, and temperature with heat. Each sounds like a similar concept, but since they are different and scientifically nonspecific in this context, they can play all kinds of propaganda games, creating crisis or reframing a debate without notice. So for the unusually warm season of summer, they use the nonspecific terms heat or hot in place of what normal people would refer to as temperature. Now, in this context, he says the latter has a specific scientific definition. Thus, they don't have to worry about those pesky bugaboos of journalism called facts. They can play fast and loose with the language because how do you define the heat in this context? Just as it's difficult to nail down the definitions of, of, of violence or gender, But even worse than that, you've probably noticed, he says, you've probably noticed that these days there isn't a news story that doesn't somehow have a climate connection. Well, here's his point. That's by design and not an overwrought term conspiracy theory. The ruling class needs to know that it's used that excuse for uh, way too many times, but we digress. Now, what what are global cooling, global warming, global boiling, climate change, climate crisis, and now climate emergency? Will it soon be climate calamity, catastrophe, or cataclysm, depending on which one sounds scariest and will bring in the most money and votes? Now, here's where it gets very fascinating, because he actually refers to an initiative from the Columbia Journalism Review and The Nation that was announced four years ago, titled entitled Covering Climate Now. This is the primer of how to cover stories to make them about climate. And if you want to see what official propaganda looks like, My friend, this is it. Transforming the media's coverage of the climate crisis. That's the subtitle of it. It quickly amassed more than 170 news outlets from around the world to ram this propaganda down our throats. And it triumphantly announced, climate stories are everywhere. Then you have the Global Heat Health Information Network under the World Health Organization. Remember those folks from the COVID lockdowns? And the World Meteorological Association. Very much like the Covering Climate Now cabal, the G-A-H-I-N offers helpful hints on how to cover the climate emergency. That's their words. Such as this gem from its page on reporting on extreme heat and health. Quote, Instead of waiting for an extreme heat event to begin or end before publishing coverage, create awareness in advance, both seasonally and before a projected heat event. Raising public awareness around impending risks can enable them to take preventive action. Read between the lines for a second. What does that sound like? We've got to start scaring them, or at least getting them concerned, early on. Now, D. Parker says that preventative action inevitably entails voting for leftists and giving up your individual liberty and private property for the vague promise that it will somehow save the planet, even if the major producers aren't doing the same. Look how well that COVID lockdown worked out for the non-ruling class. And then if you wondered why there's been a dearth of the normal images of people enjoying the usual seasonal activities of this time of year, here's your answer. Quote, instead of showing scenes of crowded beaches, swimming pools or fountains, show people struggling in the heat and its negative and dangerous impacts. They're telling them how to frame the news stories. Images that show people enjoying hot weather by spending time at the beach or pool hide the serious risk that many people face during hot weather and often contradict the serious tone of the narrative. Well, at least they admit it's a narrative, right? Oh, by the way, end quote. So much for fun in the fun in the sun, says D. Parker. There are fear and potential votes to be forced from people out of the sheer terror of summertime heat. But it gets even worse. Covering Climate Now ever so helpfully offers 10 tips in best media practices for getting the climate story right. You've got to hear these. Number one, say yes to the science. There are not two sides to a fact. Number two, the climate crisis is a story for every beat. At its core, the climate story is a science story. But whether you cover business, health, housing, education, food, national security, entertainment, or something else, there's always a strong climate angle to be found. Work it in somehow. Is that not what they're saying? Number three, emphasize the experiences and activism of the poor, communities of color, and indigenous people. Environmental justice is the key to the climate story. Just more left-wing talking points, right? Ditch the beltway he said, she said. Avoid doom and gloom. Go easy on the jargon. Beware of greenwashing. Extreme weather stories are climate stories. The news is awash in hurricanes, floods, unseasonable snow dumps, record heat waves, and drought. They are not all due to climate change, but the increased frequency and intensity of such extreme weather certainly is. Number nine, jettison the outdated belief that climate coverage repels audiences and loses money. (laughs) Speak the lines, no matter what. And number ten, for God's sake, do not platform climate denialists. We understand as well as anyone that opinion pages occasionally need to push the envelope with unpopular takes. But they say there is no longer any good faith argument against climate science. And if one accepts the science, one also accepts the imperative for rapid, forceful action. Oh, they're not done yet. I'll come back to this after the break, but... Again, these are helpful hints, for here's how you can report the news, but... That last one is pretty much actively saying, just censor anybody who doesn't march in lockstep here. Have you ever known an idea so good that it could not be exposed to another idea, or could not endure anything except people chanting it in unison? Neither have I. This... Is the Brian Hyde Show? This is the Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Again, thank you for joining us today. And a quick shout out to Monticello College.org, ClimbingUpward.com, TMCPNation.com, and LifesavingFood.com. These are my sponsors. If you want to thank them by doing business with them, that would make me very happy. In the meantime, you might even want to just drop them a note and tell them thank you for sponsoring the show. So I'm sharing this article from D. Parker. pick this one up off of uh, AmericanThinker.com. Does it seem like every news story lately is on climate doom? And when you understand that there there was actually an effort put forth about four years ago, this was uh, from oh, what is it called? Uh, Columbia. Sorry, I've got to I've got to pull it up here. There it is. Okay. It's the Columbia Journalism Review and the Nation. And it's an initiative they launched four years ago called Covering Climate Now. And I just shared with you 10 recommendations to help get the climate story right. These are best media practices in their words. And the worst of this handy little guide, they have a handy little guide that they handed out. It's a PDF called Making the Climate Connection to Share with Your Newsroom. In other words, to make sure everybody is on the same page in your news organization. They have these imaginary conversations. So here's the concern. Well, I'm unsure how climate change is responsible for this event. The reality, direct attribution to a single incidence of extreme weather is possible, but it's tricky and can take time. Science is nevertheless explicit that climate change sets the conditions for extreme weather to be more likely and worse, and that's a fact you can include in your reporting now. Do you see the rhetorical sleight of hand? It may not be happening at the moment, but uh, hey, science says... That it's going to happen if you have an an experience of extreme weather. It can be tied to climate change. Doesn't that just pretty much hand them a blank check? Whatever happens, yeah, you can say it's climate change. Seems a little bit uh, slimy to me. Here's another concern. I don't want to seem like an activist. Okay, here's their answer to it. The reality, climate change is critical context for understanding extreme weather. It's not activist to mention it. It's accurate. This heat wave is exactly the sort of extreme weather that scientists around the world would associate with climate change or a warming planet. This hurricane comes at a time when human-caused climate change is consistently making storms like it more intense. These are the talking points that they're giving to these reporters. You can also try an analogy or turn a phrase. Climate change isn't solely to blame for extreme weather, but it stacks the deck against us. It's baked in with our weather and often a key ingredient in the outcome. And it supercharges normal normal weather patterns like steroids. Now, they even offer a special tip. Emphasizing the human impacts of extreme weather can help drive home the significance of climate change. So if you're covering how an extreme weather event is affecting marginalized people, especially, be sure also to note that this is characteristic of climate change, which evidence shows will impact the poor, communities of color, and indigenous groups first and worst. Because a little guilt mixed in with that Marxist oppression, oppressor kind of ideology, well, it certainly couldn't hurt. Now, Dee Parker says, note that this was changed sometime between February 26th of this year and May 19th of this year. Maybe it was too explicit in telling the national socialist media what to say. But he says, we're guessing that now we've pointed out that they are disingenuously using heat instead of temperature and are following the panic propaganda practices. You'll notice that they're everywhere. But don't worry, we can boldly predict that in six months, they'll be talking about the cold or snow or lack of either one being a sure sign of the climate emergency because they've stacked the deck either way on this. Interesting and I think this is I think this is on point. So I'm not going to ask you to take my word for it. I am going to say though, if you are exposing yourself to news coverage and particularly if you know oh boy, they're talking about the climate again, see if you can pick up on any of those little uh, rhetorical sleight- of-hand techniques that uh, D Parker has pointed out here. That's pretty interesting stuff and it's disturbing because I don't like to be lied to, I'm sure you don't either. I want credible information. I don't want to be treated like a child who has to be led around by the hand. Now, honey, here's what you're supposed to believe. Say it with me. Say it with me. Man is responsible for changing Earth's climate. And, and by the way, as a, an alternative, just as another source of information, I'm not saying this is the one true source that you must trust. I strongly recommend go to Suspicious Observer's YouTube channel. I think it's spaceweathernews.com is, is also Ben's uh, main website. This guy is a legit scientist. And he particularly focuses on the sun. And how the sun's electromagnetic uh, effects not only affect the Earth's climate, but the climate of every single planet in the solar system. And if you, if you want an informed second opinion... Just to, you know, give you a little bit broader vantage point from which to assess things. I don't think you can do better than Suspicious Observer's YouTube channel or SpaceWeatherNews.com. Fascinating stuff. I actually subscribe to his daily YouTube updates because they're just nice, concise, three to four minute long videos that'll tell you, here's what the sun is doing today. He'll show you using NASA's own instruments, okay, here it is in 132 angstroms or whatever, you know, they use to to measure the light. But, you know, when you see what's happening on the sun and you start to understand, oh, well, isn't that fascinating? You start to realize, you know, all this talk about, well, man is causing this and man is causing that. These are just ploys to get people to, to buy into the notion that if you'll just give us more power and more of your money, we can control the weather. Now, I don't know. I've, you know, I've heard some pretty interesting conspiracy theories and I'm using that term in, you know, a gentle way, not saying they're, they're all stupid and they're all wrong, but I've heard some theories that, you know, the, the HAARP array is, is capable of weather modification. And um, I, the answer I have is, I don't know. I suppose it's possible. I suppose there's, there's some technology that's at use that we really don't know much about. In fact, while I'm off on a bit of a tangent here, can I just throw a quick question at you? So, supposedly last week, in an official hearing before members of Congress, some government experts supposedly admitted that, yes, we have extraterrestrial craft in our possession and the remains of biological beings that are not from this planet that presumably were piloting said craft. In other words, you know, this is like an X-Files episode come to life. Do you believe it? That's the crazy thing. I I and and maybe the problem is with me. Um, I agree with whoever came up with the meme that said, you know, I believed in UFOs right up until my government told me that they were real. <laughs> I'm kind of the same way. Now that I've got my government saying, well, yeah, uh, so apparently this is real. I'm very suspicious. I'm like, well, hold up there. You know, is this a distraction? Most likely. There's some pretty shady stuff that's coming to light, and this is why Trump is, you know, the target of more indictments. I mean, how many times can they indict him? Could it not be more clear that uh, that it's just a matter of going after him, you know, time and again? And, and you know, I, I don't know. Now, I think the latest charge is, uh, well, he was he's trying to overthrow the election of 2020. I like the uh, comment I saw the other day. It said, okay, fine. The Bidens actually did take $17 million in bribes. The DOJ covered it up. Robert Kennedy Jr. was censored at a hearing on censoring, and the Dems are trying to throw the leading GOP candidate in prison. But don't you dare tell me that these people would ever rig an election. Snap. (laughs) That is right on the money. So I don't know. Do you believe, do they really have UFOs? Do they really have, you know, uh, the bodies of uh, the occupants of these supposedly extraterrestrial craft? You know, my honest answer is, I don't know. But the fact that they're coming forth with it, you know, that uh, those in authority are, well, finally, we can tell the truth. First of all, it appears that the vast majority of Americans just yawned and went, yeah, whatever. And I guess after what we've been through in the last three years and what we're currently experiencing in terms of living in bizarro world, it just barely moves the needle, I think, for a lot of us. Then there's that whole idea of uh, institutional distrust. And frankly, you know, <laughs> They could tell me at noon, yes, the sun is shining. And I'd have to look just to make sure, just because I I just don't trust them. Anyway, I hope you'll check out the article that I'm including from D. Parker on the weather and climate doom. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Glad you could join me today. And uh, I, I've got a couple of stories here that I'd like to, to run across uh, your, your screen, or at least your radar screen, make you aware of, of what's happening. Um, first one has to do with uh, the strike in Hollywood. Now, I don't know about you. I, I really don't care so much about Hollywood. In fact, um, I, I don't want to sound callous because it's not like I'm indifferent to the suffering of the, the writers and the actors and actresses in Hollywood. I mean, you know, they're, they're people too. But Ryan McMacken from the, the Mises Institute, writing as an economist, notes that it's just possible that uh, what's happening with their, their labor uh, model Their old-fashioned studio labor model may be outdated, and it just may not survive too much longer. It's an interesting article. He says people with jobs, children, and actual responsibilities may not have noticed, but Hollywood is nearly shut down right now thanks to both a writer's strike and an actor's strike. Or more accurately, only the writers and actors who are members of the unions are on strike. So that would be members of SAG, AFTRA, and the Writers Guild of America. They're refusing to work until TV and movie studios agree to a variety of demands. Now, his point is they may be in for some very unpleasant surprises. Studio revenues and advertising income isn't what it used to be. Cable subscriptions are down. Theater attendance hasn't recovered from COVID. Whether when revenues are stagnant or falling, it's harder to get the studios to raise compensation. Another big problem that writers and actors face is we now live in an age when mid-budget content creators who can reach millions of viewers through platforms like YouTube and TikTok and talk and Twitter exist. That's real competition. These people are usually not union members, which means a lot of non-union competition for Hollywood content creators. And this highlights a central problem that unions have always faced, that uh, labor unions do not and never have raised wages for all workers in any particular industry. They can only raise wages for union members. But if non-union workers can still write, film, edit, and act outside union control, they'll always offer an alternative to union workers. Moreover, rising wages can only be supported in the long run by rising levels of productivity. That is, writers and actors can only expect sustainably large pay if they're also bringing in more net revenue. But it's not clear rising revenue is something that Hollywood actors and writers should expect. His point is, in this new age of decentralized and democratized content creation, union members' demands may simply be based on wishful thinking for a bygone era. I thought that was fascinating. And and look, maybe this is just me becoming that old guy who yells at kids, get off my lawn, and, you know, yells at clouds for blocking the sun or whatever. Hollywood has very little to offer me. Yeah, I'll watch the occasional movie, and sometimes, by the way, there are some great ones. Want me to throw a recommendation at you? Monuments Men. I think it was written and produced in part by George Clooney. Fascinating World War II flick based on an actual story, of a number of art experts who were recruited into the U.S. military at the end of World War II and sent to Europe to help reclaim millions of pieces of fine art that the Nazis had confiscated in the areas that they had conquered during the war. It's a, it's a really great show. But for the most part, Hollywood is is so counter to, to anything that I uh, find redeeming that, uh, that I really just, I don't care what they're doing. They just don't have that much to offer. I, I haven't, I haven't gone to see Oppenheimer yet. I haven't gone to see Barbie, probably won't. I'm just, I'm just not that interested in whatever they're trying to do. And I know the buzz out there, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to tell you, you shouldn't either. I just find that uh, it's just not the same the values that are represented, the the subtext and the, I don't know, that wagging finger that seems to be, you know, just, just behind the scenes of every, every you know, Hollywood production. It's just not for me. Anyway, I would recommend take a look at uh, Ryan McMakin's article, and it's it goes uh, well beyond just, you know, unions and labor theory and so forth. It's just the idea that, uh, if if you've noticed, there is a big shift that has taken place. And one of those shifts is that uh, now content creation is very decentralized. In a small way, I'm a part of that content creation. Am I competing with Hollywood? Hardly. I don't even really compete with most of the content creators out there. But... I still use it to, to the advantage as best I can, and and small or large, there is an audience out there that is looking for truth, that's looking for encouragement, that's looking for a slightly different angle on what's taking place. I guess I'm, I'm all I'm saying is there there's room for many voices out there, and it's up to us, it's incumbent on you and and me to to figure out. Which ones can we trust? Which ones actually bring value to our understanding? All right. There's another article I wanted to touch on, too. This is uh, uh, Biden's latest attack on our Second Amendment rights. Subtitle here, if they can ban ammunition, they won't need to ban guns. This is from Mark Jones. It was published on Monday of this week. He says, those who despise American gun ownership never seem to stop. Since they thankfully cannot ban firearms outright, politicians are now trying to ban cheap, commonly used ammunition and make hunting and shooting sports too costly for the average American. Case in point, the Biden administration has proposed a ban on lead ammunition on eight national wildlife refuges in the eastern United States. Now think about what that means. Obviously, this small-scale ban is just a first step and could easily be expanded to the entire federal lands system which covers roughly 650 million surface acres, or 30% of the country, if taken to its logical conclusion. And Mark Jones says it's important to note from the onset that this has nothing to do with the 30-year-old ban on the use of lead ammunition for hunting waterfowl. Oh, I was a big-time duck and goose hunter when that uh, ban kicked in, and I saw the difference. I, I witnessed it with my own eyes. Even smaller lead shot would fold up a Canada goose cleanly. Whereas steel shot, I can't tell you how many times I saw ducks and geese shot with steel shot. You know, feathers flew down, hung in the air, and they still flew away. No hunter likes to see that kind of stuff. Not only because the game got away, but very likely it got away wounded. And that, uh, that's unconscionable for people who are, are truly sportsmen. Now, the article talks about how no major pro-hunting or pro-gun groups are fighting to reverse that 30-year ban on, you know, the use of uh, lead ammunition for hunting waterfowl. But the Biden administration is instead now proposing a total ban on lead ammunition for any purpose on federal lands, which, when expanded in the future, would destroy the hunting and recreational target shooting industry as we know it. This is the third attempt by politicians to completely ban lead on federal lands just in the last decade. During the Obama administration, the Center for Biological Diversity and over a 100 anti-hunting, anti-Second Amendment groups petitioned the Environmental Protection Agency to ban lead ammunition. But the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia ruled the agency lacked the authority to do so. So they've been looking for other avenues, these radical proponents, to push their agenda. Well, just before leaving office then-President Barack Obama's Interior Department, tried to ban lead ammunition on lands managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. That's about 95 million acres. But Ryan Zinke, then-President Trump's uh, newly confirmed Interior Secretary, reversed that decision soon after taking office in March of 2017. Now, this current effort is more discreet and insidious because it starts small, so most hunters and recreational shooters won't be affected or take notice. Proponents of lead ammunition bans claim it harms human health and wildlife populations, but the issue, however, has been studied by health departments in a number of states, and no legitimate research has shown conclusive evidence of serious illness or death of humans by eating game taken with lead ammunition. In most studies, hunters and their families had lead levels similar to the average American. Now, when addressing wildlife concerns, the endangered California condor is the animal that has been most carefully studied. California banned lead ammunition in 2007 to protect the condors. And while compliance with the ban was around 97%, according to the state's Department of Fish and Wildlife, follow-up research in recent years has shown lead levels in condors are the same or higher than when than when the ban was implemented, telling us those condors are getting lead from sources besides bullet or shot. So the reality is that no studies have proved that ammunition-based lead has a population-level impact on terrestrial wildlife species. So what's really going on here? The alternatives are two to four times as expensive as simple lead ammunition, which would drastically reduce participation in shooting sports. I mean, even lead ammunition is not cheap. And that increased cost would be particularly harmful to women, to single parents, and minorities, who are the leading groups of new shooters and hunters in the states. So while the federal government controls over 30% of the land in this country, the size of these areas alone doesn't tell the entire story. Millions of Americans depend on federal lands for hunting and target shooting, and simply put, without them, large percentages of hunters and shooters will be denied recreational opportunities under a lead ammo ban. So reducing population is very likely the unstated goal behind this proposal. And the sick thing about it is, that could actually work. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment today... I've got two great articles to share with you, one of which is the article of the day. You can always check these out at uh, my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Go to show notes. Specifically, you'll be looking for the show notes for August 2nd of 2023. All right. First thing I want to start out with is uh, I want to recommend a resource that I have really come to count on, and that is Jordan Schachtel. He is uh, he's an investigative journalist. Great resource for anybody who's seeking credible information. I'm not telling you the guy walks on water and he's infallible, but he's very good at getting his facts straight. So I like to, I like to look to him when he weighs in on a particular issue. Um, I think he makes a lot of sense. His latest column is titled, They Got Away With It. Now what? Now he's talking about the people, the technocratic tyrants of the world who got away with what they forced on us through the, the fear-mongering associated with COVID. And the answer that he puts forth is you have to accept reality and educate the masses in order to stop the next big power grab. Jordan says, The technocratic tyrants of the world still believe that there is only upside to any current and future attempts at sweeping power grabs. And how can you blame them? After all, they got away with it. All of it. Anthony Fauci a worldwide celebrity. He's taken up a prestigious series of appointments at Georgetown University and elsewhere. Bill Gates and gang are jet-setting around the world, preaching the gospel of the climate hoax church. The C-suite executives and boards of directors at Pfizer and Moderna remain unscathed. Most of the appointees to the Trump and Biden coronavirus task forces have long since cashed out and laundered their credentials through the revolving door and into the biotech big pharma sphere. And the list goes on. So he says it shouldn't come as much of a surprise that they're trying to restart the party to attempt another series of grand slams. The pharma-sponsored corporate media once more is spreading the fear of hype. Time to bring the masks out again, especially as the school season starts, read the MSNBC headline Tuesday morning. An entire segment on AB- on Tuesday from ABC's Good Morning America was dedicated to tracking supposed increasing hospitalizations from coronavirus infections, warning that the numbers are on the rise. Now, Jordan says, I'm sorry to break it to the true believer useful idiots who still triple mask or whatever. But COVID isn't coming back. Your co-religionists have largely moved on to whatever the next current thing is. He says, despite that, the bad guys of the COVID hy- hysteria era never faced any consequences for the human rights atrocities they committed since 2019. And in all likelihood, they never will. I'm sorry, that's that's very depressing to me to think that. But anyway, they've never been held remotely accountable for being wrong and especially for behaving with complete disregard for the unalienable rights of the 8 billion human beings who populate our world. Therefore, this very ruling class faction with its insatiable appetite for power will never stop attempting to have their way with our civilization. They're currently throwing bumper sticker narratives at the dartboard and seeing what sticks. And with the Slava slush fund, became, when it became increasingly unpopular, they have yet to find a new long-term winning ticket, at least for now. The battle to hold these forces legally accountable appears to be going about as well as the attempted Ukrainian counteroffensive against Russia. Now, on the positive side of things, however, he says it's worth remembering that coronavirus hysteria didn't end because a virus suddenly got weaker. It ended because enough human beings became educated to the reality that the response to the pandemic was wildly overblown and they were no longer worried about acquiring the sniffles. It's the same reason why Pfizer and Moderna stock is crashing. The signal has arrived. The game is up. I'm going to leave the rest of this article for your uh, enjoyment. But I agree with, uh, with Jordan Schachtel. Education is paramount. And through platforms like Substack, the promise held by the social media app formerly known as Twitter, Rumble and elsewhere, the forces for humanity still have a shot to win the messaging battle. And when the next big power grab arrives we should hope for much more courage and bravery than we saw last time around. Yeah, I've, I've talked with a couple of friends and I feel this way myself. I will not begin to go along to get along the next time they, they pull this kind of garbage. I was reluctant in the first place, but now that line in the sand is a trench. You can count on me to, to absolutely not go along with those kinds of hijinks ever again, period. All right, final story. This is our, our uh, article of the day. Conspiracy theory is thuggery. This is courtesy of Paul Rosenberg. Oh, I love this take. He says, well, it's possible to use conspiracy theory in a neutral way. I'm struggling to recall an instance. In actual use to call someone a conspiracy theorist is to slap them. Its purpose is to shut them up, to stop others from considering what they said, and to shame them as badly as possible. Anyone who's been its target knows this. Calling conspiracy theory adds precisely no factual input to a discussion. It's simply an attempt to end a conversation, an attempt to intimidate and paralyze. Now he says mature people speak to communicate and to find the truth of things. And if things are too complex or obscure for truth to be clearly seen, then they try to understand the other party's viewpoint and to clarify their own. Immature people speak for the purpose of winning. Now, it's almost excusable for a fifth grader on the playground, but it's not for someone in their 30s or, God forbid, in their 50s or 60s. Yes, there are plenty of foolish ideas bouncing around. There always are. The people promulgating those ideas, however, are generally eager to discuss them, hoping to prove them true. That's not only acceptable, but useful. And I dare say that we've all, been, we've all held stupid ideas at one point or another. So he says, I'm writing this now because we have entered a time of censorship. The various COVID manias and spinoffs have hardened millions of people into tribal hatreds. They've centered their minds around that which they hate. Within that mindset, censorship becomes a means toward a necessary end. And so he says, it's up to us, folks. I'm being very blunt in this post, but I don't want any of us to become angry and focus our minds on our enemies. Our job is to build something better. Still, he says, there's a time to remind our friends and neighbors that they've left the path. Now bear in mind that most of the people intimidating others and cheering for censorship have been caught up in a mob, and they're also able to leave it, so he says, speak the truth in love, but do speak it. By the way, his thoughts on, you know, the preservation of sanity and civilization are, are just marvelous. You've you got to remember that uh, what we see today is more often than not, it's an expression of idolatry and dogma. And that's because human nature is to idolize, to set things above reality itself. And by the way, the, the proudly anti-religious, he points out, are often the most idolatrous and dogmatic. So whenever people are getting whipped up for a cause, any cause, Paul Rosenberg says, that's the right time to step away. And if they start chanting, he says, move away quickly. I'll forego the long explanation, but he says, joining the pack slays reason for as long as you remain in the pack. And that really is idolatry because whatever we place above reason, whatever we place above questioning has become our God. His point here is the crowd is always a deceiver. No one expressed this more concisely than Simone Well when she said, conscience is deceived by the social. Paul says conscience is individual, social is collective, and the two are at odds. Likewise, sanity is individual, and mania is collective. Within the crowd, malice appears as duty, honor, order, and justice. To reside in the crowd is to be deceived, and the question is just how much? He says, any time you surrender your decision-making to outsiders, you are making an error. And yes, that means that authority is fundamentally a scam. The more intimidated you are, the less better your functions operate. Moral courage, he says, is far, far more important than physical courage. The mob is the enemy of what's best in you. And so he counsels, separate from it at the first opportunity. And I like how he puts this, civilization is not a function of systems. It's a function of what's in us we are the primaries. All systems, good, bad, or indifferent, are derivatives. So the great error of the democratic era, certainly true over my now fairly considerable lifetime, he writes, was that people believed democracy would solve all their problems and would by itself assure civilization. But that was always an idolatrous dream. What matters is what we are as individual people. No institution is to be taken as anything more than a blunt tool. The civilization we hold in ourselves, that's what holds the world in sanity in a state of sanity, is how I should put it. And nothing else can, no matter how it's advertised. As individuals, we are magical creatures who can willfully reverse entropy. Within the group, we're just a collection of pieces, trying to feel powerful. Being grouped degrades us. It teaches us bad lessons. But standing as an individual makes us better, sometimes in spurts, sometimes slowly. Whatever exceptions and gray areas may exist... Paul Rosenberg says, joining a crowd makes us worse. What makes us better is freedom of conscience, a recognition of human dignity, a belief in our own efficacy. And he summarizes by saying, the people who marshal movements are taking advantage of human weaknesses. And yes, he says, many of them are aware of it. So step away from the crowd. Cultivate your individual mind. Have civilization in yourself. I really believe I saved the best for last in today's show, so thank you for enduring and sticking around to hear it. If you want to check this out in detail, please go to my show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.